The comments and views expressed on The More Show are those of the people that make them and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kevin Moore, The More Show, or this radio station and its affiliates or sponsors. Hello and welcome to another edition of The More Show, which is sponsored by the UFO Matrix magazine. On today's show, I'm about to be joined with my guest, Steve Alton. Now, Steve is a native of Philadelphia and holds a bachelor's degree in physical education, a master's degree in sports medicine, and a doctorate degree in sports administration from Temple University. His first book, Meg, a novel of deep terror, was a New York Times bestseller and was sold in more than a dozen countries. As an author, Steve has two goals. Firstly, to continue to become a better storyteller, and secondly, to remain accessible to his readers. To date, Steve has worked with a huge range of experts, including a submarine expert, a maximum security prison guard, a physics and chemistry professor, and a former NASA rocket scientist, just to name a few. So without further ado, Steve Alton, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve, um, just tell us a bit about yourself then, please. Well, I'm a, a best-selling author of uh, nine different novels. The ninth novel just came out this month called Meg Hell's Aquarium. Meg is short for Carcharonon Megalodon, the 70-foot, 70 70,000-pound 70, prehistoric cousin of the great white shark. And uh, this is actually the fourth in the series that I've written. Okay. And do you have a website with your uh, books on? I do, uh, com. Okay. How many books have you, sorry, novels have you actually written? Well, I've published nine. I'm writing the tenth right now called Grim Reaper. Uh, my books tend to be action thrillers. Uh, they blur the lines between science fiction and science fact. And uh, I write about sea creatures and doomsday prophecies yeah. and end of the world scenarios and uh, all sorts of fun things to keep you up at night. Now, tell me about your book, Meg, sort of the inspiration behind that. Meg was my first book. Meg, like I said, is short for Car Caranon, Megalodon, the prehistoric great white shark's cousin. Uh, it was 70 feet long, and, and uh, it dominated the oceans for millions of years, and it may still be out there in the deep waters of the Mariana Trench and other abyssal waters. And um, May came out in 1997. It was optioned for a movie a couple times. So we're looking to uh, get into production soon. And uh, it was the first in four books, Meg the Trench, Meg Primal Waters, and yeah. the just-released Meg Hell's Aquarium, which is the best of the four books. Now, obviously, you put a lot of research into these books before you actually um, put pen to paper. Um, how much sort of research did this book take? Well, all my books... Uh, blur the lines between fact and fiction, so I do a lot of research. Uh, I try to get the details right. I think it makes it more fun for the reader. With Hell's Aquarium, um, I was familiar with the characters, having written three other books before. Uh, but uh, in this case, I had to get reacquainted with um, some of the, really the most frightening sea monsters that have ever been created. Um, you know, everything from Leoplorodon to uh, uh, Chronosaurus to uh, uh, Dunkleostesis to all sorts of... Uh, amazing animals that you really don't catch too much of. I mean, Jurassic Park focused on land animals, but uh, this really focuses on the um, prehistoric sea reptiles and the monsters of the deep. 
We talk about Loch Ness, but is this a prehistoric dinosaur that's uh, trapped in the loch? Well, The Loch was my seventh novel. came out a few years ago. It just came out in, pap- in paperback here in the States. And The Loch is uh, a modern-day hunt for the Loch Ness Monster. It dispels the uh, mythology that comes out of Scotland that this creature is a plesiosaur. It's not. It's not an air-breathing uh, marine reptile. Uh, it is something entirely different. Um, it's still monstrous in its own way, but it doesn't surface because it doesn't need to. Uh, but it's out there, and, and the lock uh, uses uh, the latest in uh, cryptozoology theories. And, and uh, in fact, I worked extensively with uh, one cryptozoologist who had spent 10 years at Loch Ness. And uh, when he showed me his theories, uh, I knew he was right, and uh, that's the one I used for the book. So what would your description of the creature be, then? Well, without giving too much away, it's, um, it's a fish. Um, about 40 to 60 feet long. It's yeah. a female. The females grow bigger. It uh, migrates in from the uh, Sargasso Sea, and uh, there's many of these creatures in Loch Ness, but this one is particularly big for a particular reason. I mean, is it still out there? Is the creature still out there as such, or would you say? Well, uh, it very well could be. Um, in fact, um, a couple summers ago, uh, there was a report coming uh, out of Scotland uh, from two uh, American college students who had gone over to Loch Ness and, uh, um, as part of their U.K. vacation and, and the, during spring break, and they rented a boat from a local, and they took them around on the shorelines, and, and they found a half-eaten deer carcass lying on the shoreline, and they got out, you know, as you know, college students will do to yeah. mess around with it a little bit, and they, they found in the carcass a tooth, of uh, the creature that had killed it, and it was uh, a marine creature. Uh, the tooth was about three or four inches long. It was barbed. It had the roots and system intact. And they, they took videos of this whole thing before the tooth was confiscated, and um, uh, they put out a reward. They uh, contacted my cryptozoologist, who contacted me, and we uh, made a big deal about it, of course, to try to link it to the promotion of the lock. Yeah. But, uh, if you go on Loch Ness Tooth on YouTube, you can see the footage that they took it pretty interesting so where, where's that tooth now then i don't know I, I you know it was confiscated from these guys they put out a reward they tried to get it back i think eventually they yeah. they were paid off to shut up and and because they were they are not allowed to contact us anymore by legal agreement but uh, right. what we did was we um took the uh photos of the tooth that they had taken and showed it to some marine biologist who confirmed what it was and and uh uh, we put out a $10,000 reward for fishermen in the U.K. to capture one of these creatures, and, and one of them did, hooked on, on a line, and uh, sent the skull back to us. Uh, we sent it to a museum curator who uh, enlarged it so it would fit the tooth that these guys had filmed. Yeah. And uh, what we left us with was a six-and-a-half-foot uh, giant skull of what could be the real Loch Ness Monster. So many people just believe in sort of just one of these creatures there. I mean, is is there one or is there many or? Well, I, I you know, I don't know from a science standpoint, from a, a, a thriller standpoint, there's one, you know, it <laughs> yeah. makes for a better book. Yeah. But, uh, but from a from a scientific standpoint, it's impossible to tell. The thing about Loch Ness is that, you know, you're talking about a 23-mile-long lake, a mile wide at certain parts, you know, 800 feet deep at certain parts, you know, making it deeper than the North Sea which it borders, and, and um, you know, it's, it's, the water is so dark yeah. and so cold, 
it really makes uh, exploration difficult. So do the Highlanders know of this creature there? Do the locals know of this, or of what it really looks like? And, and uh, I mean, obviously, because we're, we're led well, to... Well, according to the investigator that I work with, they do know, some of them know, um, especially the ones in the wintertime who have spotted this thing. But they don't, they don't want to confuse the myth with the, the fact... Yeah, because they derive such a large income from the tourist industry. So it's sort of protecting and their and the tourist attraction. Knew that they were wasting their time, you know, taking out boats and standing around the shoreline waiting for a creature that really doesn't have to surface to surface. Um, you know, that probably wouldn't be good for tourism. And it makes I, for a fun book. But yeah. It make for great what would it be closest to on the planet? What sort of species would it be closest to? If we, if we, you know. well, I mean, I can tell you, but uh, or I can play the hinting game. I don't want to ruin it. For no, you. you know, if they want to read the lock, then it all, it's explained from a scientific standpoint and, a, and an action adventure standpoint, and it's it's a reveal that uh, uh, it makes sense from a scientific standpoint as well. Okay, well, we'll we'll leave that one for the readers to uh, to reveal. So, um, so getting on land, then it, it, these there's been land sightings. Um, so these creatures have no problem on you know getting on land, then do they? That's a good point. They are amphibious. Um, they can breathe in the air or, or underwater. Um, so it, it's a very particular type of species that's very hardy. Yeah, and um, is it a savage beast? Would you say, or is it a sort of? I mean, obviously, well, you've just described there that, that deer yeah, that was... Yeah, they, they are savage beasts. They are um, the smaller version. Fishermen hook them every once in a while, and they're, they're really nasty fish to hook. And right. They've got very sharp teeth, very needle-like teeth, and you, you don't want to mess with these things. Yeah, it's a, it's a pity that there was no sort of uh, DNA to be, you know, done on the tooth, but um, if, it, if it's gone then, I suppose uh, there's, there's no chance on that. And um, I'm hoping one day it'll come out, but... Um, Prehistoric-wise, it's it's more of a a fish sort of creature. It's not prehistoric. It's sorry. It's, uh, it's you know there are smaller of its kind that yeah. that uh, proliferate in the ocean, and but this particular species uh, does migrate into Loch Ness, and okay, and one in particular got very large for due to certain extenuating circumstances. Okay. And would you return to this kind of novel again? I don't rule it out. Um, you know the Loch. Uh, starting its run in paperback now we're yeah. we're hoping to make it into a movie and um you know if it's successful and people want to read more about it then then i may be writing a sequel in some way shape or form but it's not on the calendar right now okay and again we'll put a link on our website to the amazon.co.uk and in other bookstores as well that carry that book um the next Great. book i want to move on to uh steve is uh the shell game um now tell our listeners a bit about that book please well, the shell game's a little different for me. It was the hardest book that I've written, um, and it took a lot out of me. And, um, the shell game is uh, about the end of oil and the next 9-11 event that is going to uh, bring us into a war in Iran. Um, it's, it's a neoconservative false flag event like the first 9-11 event. And... Uh, I don't say that lightly. Uh, 9-11 was a false flag event. It was perpetrated by members of the neoconservative p- party in the United States. Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Paul Rol- Wolfowitz among them. Um, it, it, uh, the shell game uh, reveals all these things. It, it uh, took three years to write. I did a lot of extensive interviews with people behind the scenes. Um, it pulls out um, from a book called Crossing the Rubicon, which was written by a Los Angeles police detective, 
who investigated these things. And and just to give you a, an idea of, of what really happened, uh, first of all, uh, there were at least 15 foreign intelligence agencies that warned the United States, the Bush administration, that 9-11 was going to happen. The Russians told us that the World Trade Center would be attacked by hijacked aircraft. The Germans told us the date. Um, the Egyptian intelligence, Israeli intelligence, you know, they were all warning us about these attacks. Um, so the Bush administration had ample warnings, but they not only chose to ignore the warnings, but they chose to ignore the representatives who came over to talk to them about it. They never yeah. acknowledged the warnings. Um, in uh, There were five FBI investigations that... Um, that um, uh, were investigating uh, the 9-11 hijackers. Uh, Dave Frasca, who was in charge of the FBI's um, radical fundamentalist uh, department, stopped every one of the investigations uh, dead in his tracks. Uh, he was one of the people that was in on the conspiracy, obviously. Uh, but the, the most amazing thing that slipped under the rug is that in May of 2001, Dick Cheney, was placed in charge of the seamless integration of all war game exercises uh, by presidential directive. In other words, Bush put Cheney in charge of the military, yeah. uh, the domestic military that safeguarded our shoreline. So on the morning of 9-11, Dick Cheney had taken war game exercises that were normally scheduled for the end of October and pushed them up to September 11th so that all of the jet fighters that normally would be protecting the northeastern air defense sector over the United States, which is coincidentally, not where all the hijacked aircraft were taken. Uh, all of those jet fighters were involved in war game exercises led by Dick Cheney's uh, orders uh, that diverted the jet fighters over Greenland, Iceland, Canada, and Alaska so that there were no jet fighters around to defend the northeastern air defense sector. That's the reason that for the first time in the United States history, not one, you know, one of these hijacked aircraft was able to continue to fly on its course and hit its targets. Yeah. Uh, the jet, the uh, commercial jet that hit the Pentagon uh, was flying around almost 80 minutes after the first two World Trade Centers were hit and flew around the, the most guarded uh, airspace in the United States. That There's not a bearded guy, Muslim guy, living in a cave in Afghanistan who can control the trillion-dollar NORAD system that's controlled by Dick Cheney. And none of that was ever investigated. None of that was allowed into the so-called 9-11 investigation, which was never intended to be. Dick Cheney and, and George Bush never wanted 9-11 investigated. Uh, it was only the, the um, wives of the, uh, and the families of, of the uh, victims of the World Trade Center that pushed for it and finally got it 411 days after the attacks. Um, so it, the, the shell game details those things, and it extrapolates from them and details the next 9-11 event, which Dick Cheney, um, you know, the Darth Vader of this whole thing, has been on the news constantly predicting, yep. you know, in order yep. to get his party back into power. So this is not over and done with yet, and, and uh, the shell game came out in January 2008. It uh, predicted that McCain would be the GOP candidate. It predicted uh, uh, Joe Biden would be on the ticket, uh, a female vice presidential candidate for the GOP. I mean, it, it nailed a lot of these things, most of that by sheer luck, but uh, the rest of the stuff is heavily investigated. And um, just to tie this all up, um, the book gave me so much stress. 
that uh, I noticed that things were happening with my body along the right side of my body, and um, uh, during stressful situations, I'd be right. shaking. And um, three months after the book was uh, sent to the publisher, I, I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Right. Okay. So uh, life it, does stuff. Yeah. And how have you been coping with that? How's well, that? you know, it's not anything I'd wish upon anybody, no. but my perspective is, I guess it could be a lot worse. And this is the things that I have to deal with in my life. So be it. And okay. So as well as health problems, I mean, was there any problems with getting it published or controversial? There were problems getting it published. Um, you know, I'd been on the bestseller list several times. Yeah. I'd, uh, uh, I, I thought that this would be a slam dunk. Um, and uh, as it turned out, um, the subject matter scared off the publishers. I mean, this was during a time when Bush was still in office and uh, a lot of paranoia going around and you didn't cross, you know, that party line. And uh, so it was very difficult to get published. I had to go with um, a, a peripheral publisher okay. uh, who had never done fiction before, but, but he got the book, you know, the publishing uh, CEOs, they got the book, and, and so they backed it and optioned it. And yeah. uh, I'm actually doing a rewrite next month uh, so that the paperback, which is set to come out uh, September 11, 2009, um, will be updated with the uh, Obama administration in office. Wonderful. Yeah, because, I mean, this is a big book, isn't it? I mean, I've, uh, I've seen the, the book and I've held the book, and it's um, there's a lot to it. And uh, so, so when you say updated, I mean, what... Which angle is that going to go on then, in, in a sense? Well, when I, I wrote the book the first time, um, part of my, one of my goals was that, you know, it would be a big success so that it would it would come out right before the presidential election in 2008 and help uh, defeat uh, the GOP, the, the uh, Republicans. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fortunately the Republicans were defeated soundly and America woke up. Um had nothing to do with my book, but, um, you know, uh, this time around, I want to uh, update it uh, with a Democrat in office because the threat from the neoconservatives is just as great, if not greater. Uh, none of these people have been arrested. None of these people have been brought to trial. None of these people have paid for their crimes, uh, which means they're going to do them again. What woke you up, Steve? Well... The initial investigation into the shell game, the concept was about the end of oil. And I had read a lot of studies that were running out of oil, that uh, world oil levels peaked in uh, 2004, 2005, uh, that we're drawing, that we're using more oil every day than we're able to draw out of the ground, and that uh, the third world countries that control our world oil reserves. Um, you know, basically lie about supplies for stock reasons, for um, profiting reasons, yeah. for a, a number of different reasons. And, and, uh, and you know, this is a finite supply of energy that we have. And with India and uh, China, their middle class growing, um, you know, it's the, the, what remains of the oil is, is going to be sucked out pretty quickly. And what the real harbinger of doom is that you have to realize that without oil, there is no substitute for oil, first of all. And second, without oil, we can't feed our populations. Um, here in America, 2% of the population are farmers. It's these huge industrial farms that provide enough food. Yeah. Um, the chemicals, the pesticides, you know, all the unhealthy things that make these things grow quicker. 
uh, bug-free are all uh, petroleum byproducts, and, and of course you need gasoline and diesel to, to not only run the industrial equipment but to get the product to market. There have been studies done that show that when world oil reserves finally give out, and it's not too far away, that the first thing that will happen will be rolling blackouts. The second thing that will be happening is that the food won't get to the market, and people will there'll be a huge die-off. And um, I mean, this is scary stuff. We're talking about reducing the population of the world from six billion people to five hundred million. But what so, about the Alaska uh, oil reserves? I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of untapped oil out there still. That's fallacy. That you know, first of all, these oil companies—they know where the oil is. I mean, they. Um, they're very good at what they do, and the amount of oil that's in Alaska is enough to, first, it would take 10 years to bring the, the pipeline online in Alaska, and second, it uh, there's enough oil there to meet the U.S. needs for six months at our current rate. The, the reason that they're not drilling is because it's not worth the money, uh, but you get these people who swear there's enough oil in there to run the world for the next hundred years, but it's it's just a fallacy. It's... I mean, even the Bush administration's own committee gave the statistics on how much is out there, and it's not worth drilling. Well, what would happen then? I mean, whether this is is going to be the case, but what would happen if we invented an alternative energy source? I mean, could you see that even happening in the next 10 years, uh, something alternative to oil? Well, you know, everybody always relies on technology, and that's fine, but you have to invest in it. You have to make a commitment. You have to it's not just oil being used for cars and vehicles. It's used for to heat homes and cool homes and a number of other sources. So the first thing you have to do is you have to bring alternative energy sources online. You have to restructure the, um, the delivery system, the, the, um, uh, the entire um, you know, infrastructure yeah. that carries energy. Um, you've got to bring windmills online and solar systems. And, and But you have to invest in this technology. You have to make it. best thing that could possibly happen is that gasoline prices soar to the point where people, it, it suddenly becomes economically feasible to bring on these other things online. Uh, and, um, you know, because oil prices right now are, are actually low, but they're going to go back up. You can, you can bet the bottom dollar on that. Hmm. And when they do go up, they're going to go up to the point where create problems at the pump. In this book, um, I've got to mention this, is the, the research you did into this was that you revealed that NATO does have a preemptive strike policy. Did you know about this before the research then? What particular area are you talking about? Well, well the, the, the area that, um, uh, that NATO's preemptive strike policy that um, they would nuclear strike preemptively, is that? Well, let me, let me backtrack. The, the premise of the story in the shell game and this it opens up in 2007, is that um, things are going bad in the war in Iraq, um, you know, with the insurgents, and um, things are going back bad politically for the neocons. And, and what their philosophy is, is that, they, you know, th- there is a looming threat, which there is, that Iran could develop nuclear weapons. And so what the Iranian, what, what the, the U.S. spooks believe uh, members of the CIA who work for the neoconservatives, is that um, the worst scenario in America would be if uh, 20 nuclear suitcase bombs entered the country and were able to go off simultaneously in 20 American cities. Uh, there'd be no way to prevent it. It would destroy our democracy. It would lead to you know, military intervention. And um, so rather than wait till that 
doomsday scenario takes place, what the neocons have decided is that they'll have a preemptive strike, allow one nuclear suitcase bomb to go off in one U.S. major city, which would give the U.S. president the um, retaliatory tactic and green light to go ahead and basically bomb Iran back to the Stone Age. Of course, they wouldn't bomb Iran because they want the oil. What they would do is drop chemical weapons on them, subdue the population. By that, of course, I mean wiping out the population. And that way you don't have all that nasty radioactivity going on from a, a nuke to uh, okay. uh, man the oil fields. Okay. So, you know, just like Iraq was about oil, Iran is about oil. Make yeah. no mistake about that. This is about oil. Um, if we, if the Bush administration was so concerned about human rights, they would have gone into Rwanda. But this is about oil. And uh, anything that is the excuse that gives them the um, the green light to go ahead and, and invade another country, they will do. So, um, so that's so, what the shell game is about. Would you say many events, uh, would you say they're allowed or orchestrated by the government? Well, if you research false flag events, you know, you can go back to how World War II was started, that the uh, the Nazis in power in Germany uh, basically uh, attacked, um, uh, you know, a, a, a building uh, and uh, caused a fire, I think it was the Reichstag fire, and blamed it on the communists. So that's how they acquired their power. Pearl Harbor, um, Roosevelt knew the Japanese were going to attack Pearl Harbor, uh, he moved out the carriers, the aircraft carriers, days before in preparation for the attack. But he needed that attack to happen because he needed an excuse for the American public to enter the war before uh, the United Kingdom fell. So, you know, yeah. you can criticize it or not, but, um, you know, the American uh, Secret Service, they, they had already intercepted the Japanese uh, radio broadcast, um, you know, broken the codes long before Pearl Harbor happened. They knew it was coming. Um, you know, in Vietnam, what escalated the war in Vietnam, what really brought it about was the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which was all manufactured. Um, so these false flag events have happened throughout history, and 9-11 was the biggest, most devastating of them all. It was a false flag event. It was um, an event that was in the... And there's... In America, we have... Um, a small percentage of our population that are involved in these independent 9-11 truth movements, and they, they bicker among themselves, unfortunately, because half of them say it was either let it happen, the other half says it was made it happen. In other words, the Bush administration either let it happen or made it happen. And um, it prevents a unified front with these groups. So what would you want your readers to get from this book, then? Well, um, that you need to wake up that you need to take charge, that you need to vote, you need to um, demonstrate, you need to force the government to use our investments wisely into alternative energy sources. You need to conserve, you need to grow your own food. You need to prepare for the the rollover that is inevitably coming. Hopefully it will be lessened by making the right administrative moves and the right uh, economic and energy-driven moves, but you need to be ready. Uh, we need to get back to, you know, certain things that we did 50 to 100 years ago. We need to be responsible for providing our own food in local communities. We have to stop using lettuce that was shipped halfway around the world yeah. and is filled with 
preservatives and stuff like that and uh, injected with hormones and we need to get back to basics. Get back to a more sort of community kind of way of living. And a healthy way of living. It doesn't mean we have to go back to the Stone Age, but it means that we have to find better ways of providing food for our people and things that don't rely so much on energy. Yeah, I mean, uh, with the current economic crisis, it's, um, things are out of balance, aren't they? Most definitely. Well, I mean, you can't wait till the economy is good again. You need to use this opportunity to create new um, boons to the economy that are new fields. And alternative energy is a, you know, in green energy and, you know, different ways of growing food and harvesting things. That can also boost the economy, too. Right. Well, we're going to move on there to uh, the final book we're going to review with you, which is the uh, the Mayan books. You did two Mayan books, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. The the first two in a trilogy, uh, the Domain series uh, begins with Domain and then Resurrection, and then I'll start writing Phobos, the third book in the series. Oh, wonderful! This summer. What interest? I mean, was sparked to to sort of want to cover these uh, this subject? Well, with Domain. Um, the concept began as a what if. What if the asteroid strike that hit off the Yucatan Peninsula 65 million years ago and wiped out the dinosaurs, what if that was something else? Uh, and that was curious to me. And so I began researching the Yucatan Peninsula um, uh, and uh, came across the Mayan culture and, and came across the Mayan calendar and the great wise men, Kugel Khan. And, and the Mayan calendar and its doomsday prophecy. And when, once I read that, I realized, well, this is what the book should be about. And so even though the book starts with the asteroid strike that wiped out the dinosaurs, uh, it advances to the year 2012, which is the year that the Mayan calendar predicts that humanity will end on December 21st, the winter solstice of 2012. And the story is basically about two people. The, the hero is uh, Michael Gabriel, who's the... Um, son of an f- infamous archaeologist who was the foremost authority on the Mayan calendar. Right. And uh, Mick is locked up in an insane asylum in Miami, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenic, and he's trying to convince his new intern, Dominique Vasquez, that uh, he's the only one who could save the world. Uh, and, of course, nobody believes him, and it leads to all sorts of trials and tribulations. But uh, what Domain does is it it blurs, again, the... the the science and the science fiction, it, it uh, deals a lot in archaeology. It uh, takes on uh, the Kukulkan Pyramid in Chichen Itza. Um, it, um, uh, the, the Pyramids of Giza, Stonehenge, uh, the Nazca drawings. It links everything into a universal understanding of why, how these uh, great structures were, were created, who created them, and what's really going to happen in 2012. Okay, now you mentioned a name there, uh, Kuku Khan. Now, now, who was he to the Mayans, and, and, and what sort of knowledge did he pass down to them? Well, Kuku Khan was described as a bearded white man um, with very deep blue eyes, and uh, uh, he was uh, um, basically revered as a wise man. He brought to them technologies that are still far in advance of our own. He helped invent the Mayan calendar. Uh, there's a, a pyramid that he built called the Kukulkan Pyramid in Chichen Itza, which is the Mayan city. And um, the Kukulkan Pyramid is essentially a ziggurat of stone. It's 91 steps on each of the four sides, uh, plus a platform up top, which equals 365 as in days of the year. So it's a calendar. But uh, every fall and spring equinox for a thousand years, the 
the shadow of a giant serpent appears on the northern balustrade of the temple, and it appears to slither either up or down the temple, depending upon which equinox it is. And and, and Kukulkan developed this as an ancient warning of things that were going to come. Does your research just point to the fact that he actually did exist? Well, we know he existed. But what's interesting is that in every ancient culture, there appears a similar wise man with a similar description. Um, the ancient Egyptians that built Giza, which are the only pyramids that don't have a sarcophagus in it, and yet the more advanced ones, uh, they had um, you know, their own leader as well. Um, uh, Veracocha was the leader of the Inca that uh, developed the Nazca drawings and some of the other Saxay human uh, fortresses uh, where you have these incredible weighing stones. Uh, you had a, a, a fellow that was attributed to the name Merlin who was uh, sometimes attributed to Stonehenge. That's right. Um, Quetzalcoatl was the uh, Aztec leader and, and all these guys are described the same way. So um, who were they? Uh, well, the book gets into that. Were, were they trying travelers? Were they, you know, humans from another uh, species or another planet or another time? You know, the book answers all these questions and does it in a way that keeps you turning pages. Yeah. Now, didn't they, um, didn't some of the, the mothers used to change the shape of the heads of the babies to look like this, this, yes. this, this, this cuckoo Khan? Yeah, that's that right. Um, and, and in fact, Domain even has pictures in it of it. Um, the Mayan mothers used to elongate their children's skulls uh, by tying boards to it, which would, uh, as the skull was developing, it would sort of elongate, and that was to emulate their leader, Kukulkan, who had this huge, massive skull, and it's very alien-looking, and yet we find artifacts that show that they did this. And Yeah. I mean, w- was he here to try to save us from ourselves? I mean... Um, what did he actually prophesy? Uh, that what was going to happen in 2012? Is it a conscious shift? Is it a is it is it a disaster? I mean, what what, what did he say? Well, you're asking me to reveal the plot of domain. Mm. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> okay, but I mean, the, the the sort of theories out there, aren't they? It is is it's either a conscious shift, or it is um, some sort of a, a pending disaster. But did he actually predict other other events that that have passed? Well, the Mayan calendar, uh, which is basically three different calendars in one, um, has the ability to predict different events that uh, epochs that happen over 20-year periods and um, sort of a repeating cycle. And uh, the calendar has predicted some um, some pretty amazing things that did happen, no. including 9/11. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. 9/11 was yeah. predicted. Yeah. I mean, the, the only sort of movies I've seen with uh, the Mayans, really, if I think back, was probably the Mel Gibson movie. The way you're describing them was they were quite civilized at one time. Well, I thought Apocalypto was a good movie. I, I, you know, I understand the criticism that you know they made them look like barbarians. Um, I guess to the captured slaves, mm. they that was their perspective. Uh, you know, but you had a very sophisticated culture that was mostly peace-loving. I, I think. You know, in watching Apocalypto, you'd have to say that those events took place after Kukulkan left, because when Kukulkan left is when they really turned to human sacrifice, and because they were scared and confused and worried about the end of the world and um, didn't know what to do without this ancient leader. 
Yeah, so he sort of disappeared, and then they 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 turned to sort of yeah human sacrifice, and that that would right. be women and children as well. It wasn't just obviously they just showed men. Oh yeah, yeah, and women and children. Yeah, so so no one got spared. So so I mean, in your research, I mean, how did he disappear? I mean, where? I mean, I, I've heard the story that you know that, that he went into the ocean, but I mean, is that true? Is that is that what they say? Well, they say he arrived by water and left by water, but. Um... Right. The other. See, what happened was is that he had all these codices, the Mayan codices, which detailed everything. And when uh, in 1519, when Hernan Cortez and his invading uh, Spanish uh, military invaded uh, the Aztec and the Maya homeland on the Yucatan, um, the the Spanish priests was the time of the Spanish Inquisition. They, um, you know, they looked at all these codices and. Uh, they burned them all, just about all of them. I think they had four of them that managed to survive because some sympathetic priests hit them. But, um, so the little that we know about the Mayan culture um, it comes from these four surviving codices, but the vast majority of them were burned by the, the uh, Spanish priests. Yes, because as soon as the sort of white man arrived, as is shown in Mel Gibson's film, the sort of civilization died a death I'm just well the mines are still around but not like of course they were 500 years ago yeah but um what's interesting is that um uh quetzalcoatl uh predicted that there a bearded white man would come or, or i'm sorry quetzalcoatl and kukulkan were described as bearded white men so when cortez landed um here was a bearded white man yeah. who was you know similar to quetzalcoatl and kukulkan and so even though the uh, Aztecs and Maya vastly outnumbered Cortez's uh, military, uh, you know, Cortez won the battle because of the superstition, and and he, he just the fact that he was white and had a beard. Yeah. Let's switch over then to just the last book we'll briefly talk about because I know we're coming up to the end here now, but um, that's um, Hell's Aquarium, which I've not had a chance to go over. Just roughly, what is Hell's Aquarium? about as a book well Meg Hell's Aquarium is the fourth in the Meg series it's the best of the series um, and it basically has two plot lines the, the first plot line deals with uh, a captured Megalodon female who has birthed five uh, female pups uh, there's a reason they're all female which we find out okay. um, and it's, it's overcrowding the huge aquarium facility on the west coast of the United States that um, these things occupy um, the second story deals with a Dubai prince who is building uh, the Disney World of Aquariums in Dubai, He's spending you know a billion dollars on this huge resort uh, with these two million gallon aquarium tanks, and he means to stock it with a couple of the megalodon pups and uh, these ancient sea creatures that have been discovered below the Philippine Sea Plate in the Western Pacific. So uh, these two stories sort of intertwine, and then hit each other head to head in, in the last act and um it essentially um it's it's sort of like jurassic park of of uh the ancient seas right deals with these nasty sea monsters right and uh, th- i mean this thing is way bigger than jaws isn't it the actual oh uh, oh yeah. god yeah this is um megalodon was 70 feet seventy thousand pounds uh it could eat several great whites at one time um Great White's teeth might measure an inch and a half, two inches at the most. Um, Megalodon tooth was over seven. 
why haven't we actually been able to prove that? Well, not prove, but why, do you still think they exist? Well, you can't... My view on things is that uh, Megalodon didn't disappear with the dinosaurs. It was around 36 million years ago. It, it was only disappeared recently, uh, maybe um, a million years ago, maybe 10,000 years ago. We're not sure. Uh, but it was the apex predator of all time. Now, sharks can go deep, and they can stay deep, and there's no reason a shark needs to surface. Uh, you have to realize that 5% of our oceans have been explored and less than 1% of the abyssal waters. So there are things down there that we have no idea exist because we just can't access it, and we just haven't accessed you know, the, the oceans that cover 70% of our planet. Yeah. So yeah. to say that Megalodon doesn't exist because we haven't seen it is just, to defy scientific principle. I mean, to give an example, prior to 1977, scientists believed that no life could exist at the bottom of the ocean. Why? Well, two reasons. One, because we didn't have the knowledge to move beyond photosynthesis, meaning that, you know, it takes the sun's rays to create energy to, to power living things. And number two, we'd never been down there. Yeah. So what happened in 1977 was the Alvin submersible was created, and it took scientists down to the bottom of the ocean, and guess what was down there? Uh, chemosynthesis, an entirely new uh, energy source that comes from chemicals in the water that they have these huge hydrothermal vents that spew 700-degree Fahrenheit water into the bottom of the ocean, creating an unbelievable chain of life, and there's more life down there than there is above. So, in fact, we now believe that the history of our planet's life forms comes from the sea. Prior to 1977, we didn't believe that, and that wasn't that long ago. So it's not until you actually go down and do the research that you can make a statement that Megalodon doesn't exist because you don't know. Now, if, you know, sudden, there have been accounts of these telltale dorsal fins every once in a while, but, um, you know, again, uh, Megalodon or any other shark doesn't need the surface to let us know it's around. It, it's perfectly capable of staying in the mid to deep waters and, that's where it lives. Yeah. Okay, well, um, the Adopt an Author program, I came across that on, on your website. Would you better just tell us a bit about uh, what that is that you've set up? Yes, um, Adopt an Author is a nationwide nonprofit program uh, that helps teachers get reluctant middle and high school students to read. Uh, the program started nine years ago when I became inundated from teenagers emailing me, telling me all the same thing, that they hate reading but they loved reading about Megalodon and doomsday prophecies and giant killer submarines and things like that that I wrote about. And, and we're reading. And teachers started emailing me telling me they were using Meg and my other books in the classroom because they suddenly found a source of material that teenagers like to read. Now, I never wrote the books for teens. They're adult books, but, um, you know, the subject matter is popular among teens and um, and so I saw something happening, and when I found out Meg had been named the number one book for reluctant readers by the Young Adult Library Services Association, I knew I had to do something um, to help this program along. My background's in education. I have a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degree in education, and I'm certified to teach as a, as a teacher. Sure. Uh, and uh, so I created the program, which I help pay for, and occasionally we get some sponsors, which helps. And um, Essentially, we provide teachers with free curriculum materials on the website, www.adoptandauthor.com. Uh, teachers can register. It's free. 
they get access to free curriculum materials, test quizzes, projects, vocabulary lists, everything they could possibly need to create a new curriculum. So all the work's done for them. Uh, the, the materials have been pulled for the last nine years from teachers across the country and and in uh, North America. And um, when this when students uh, are reading the books, they can email me, and I email them back, and we set up sort of a correspondence going back and forth, and um, uh, it's it's making a huge impact. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. Uh, we started yeah. out with a dozen classrooms, and we're now over nine thousand teachers. Well, it's fun subjects for kids, I suppose, and teens, isn't it? I mean, it's, who wouldn't who wouldn't find that fascinating and, and exciting as well? So, uh... and and that's and that's the secret to the program. I mean, it's not it's not me. It's the books. It's yeah, uh, getting a teenager a, a book that they like the subject. I mean, if you make reading fun, teens will read. That's right. That's uh, right. If you make it you know laborious and boring, then it's you've got a tough challenge in front of you. Okay, so Steve, to end this off. Um... Okay, what's your final statement to end this show then? Well, if you're looking for good books to help you escape reality a little bit, and uh, you know, I, I suggest you read mine. Um, uh, the Lock uh, is out in paperback now. It can be ordered through Amazon.com. The Meg Hell's Aquarium is a great book, and, and both of those are sort of the creature double features of the summer of 2009. And uh, If you email me, you can go to my website and email me, stevealton.com, and uh, I will email you back, and if you click on free updates, you can get free emailed updates. I've, I've got a pretty strong fan base in the United Kingdom that I'm very proud of and appreciative of, and I uh, always want to expand it. And um, So if you go on stevealtonalten.com and click on free updates, you can get newsletters, which will tell you how you can be a character in one of my novels. All of my novels now are filled with 60 to 70 characters who are actual readers who have, you know, submitted their information to me and I've selected them to be in there and you know it's a lot of fun I, I do a lot of things for my fans and one of the most things most important things I do is I give them the opportunity to, to contact me and, and I email them back every day oh, that's wonderful that's really cool well um, well we'll make sure all the links are on the website and we'll, we'll, we'll put the your uh, your web link on there as well um, well and there is one other thing if you want to see a very cool movie trailer for make Hell's Aquarium Go to YouTube and click on Meg Hell's Aquarium, and that doesn't make you buy the book. Nothing will. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. That's my pleasure. If you'd like to find out more on Steve Alton, go to stevealton.com or visit my site, themoreshow.co.uk, and look up Steve Alton under past guests. Also, we have a TV show which is starting on Sky 201 and FreeSat 403 beginning on the 6th of June. So until next time, be safe.